turn also to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses, sorry, 50 to 58. The text for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58. This also is the reading of God's holy word. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body will put on the imperishable, and this mortal body will put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Maybe go to our God in in prayer to ask for his blessing on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you have given us your word. Your word is truth. Your word is clear. Your word is authoritative in our lives. That when you speak, that you will carry it out. That your word is as good as done. Father, we pray in thanks for the promise of the resurrection. That Jesus indeed is risen from the grave. That you raised him by your great power. And it was the first of many to come as we look forward to our resurrection also. Father, we thank you that death could not contain our Lord, that his resurrection proved that he is righteous, that he is holy, and that it is proof that we are justified. We thank you, Father, for your provision. We pray, Father, that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be exalted this day, that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Children, What is the ultimate thing you can do to destroy something? Think about what that might be. Maybe it's if you flush something down the toilet, then we say, oh, it's gone. It's gone forever. Or if if you've seen uh, when the city does uh, tree trimming that they stick the tree branches through this wood chipper and, and these giant, big, thick branches go in and these little wood chips come out the back. So what would you think about in terms of what is the best imagery of something where, hey, this thing is done and destroyed? Well, in this passage, we have a description. Death is swallowed up in victory. You remember the scene in, uh, in the wandering in the wilderness that, that Moses, God appointed Moses to lead his people. And then there were these others. Was it like Dathan and a Abiram or something like that, well, they led a revolt against Moses. And then Moses said, hey, we will, there will come a time where well, we will see who the Lord is behind and who the Lord is with. Because they were saying, Moses, 
You know, you have exalted yourself, and you're not the only one we ought to follow, and we're going back to Egypt. And the scene there was that the earth opened up and swallowed up these people. What an imagery. Would you, would you see that? This, it's like the earth grew a mouth, uh, and, and it swallowed these people. And we can see that there's some finality to that. And yet we see also in our passage that death is swallowed up in victory. Meaning that death is as if the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up death. But it wasn't the earth. It was Jesus who defeated death. And the beginning of that is when Jesus himself died on the cross. That there was something significant when our ruler, the Prince of Peace, died on the cross because that was the final blow And what we see later on in the future, before eternity begins, is that our bodies will be raised from perishable to imperishable. And then eternity begins. And then we see that whatever Jesus promised, it's as good as done. This book of 1 Corinthians, someday I would like to preach it. It's such an interesting book, such a practical book. You can imagine the Corinthians that they lived in this city on this isthmus and they were very wealthy, they were immoral. That there was a, a saying to live like a Corinthian was to live the life of immorality. Wherever, maybe we would think of Las Vegas or uh, some people would say the Twin Cities, whatever, whatever you have. But here they had philosophers and, and here they had all kinds of, of, of wicked things going on. Immorality. And of all places, our Lord Jesus was calling sinners out of that life to new life in Jesus Christ. And so they had all kinds of questions. They apparently wrote the Apostle Paul a letter. They wrote him a letter asking him some questions. And, and his letter of 1 Corinthians was... Uh, his response to them, hey, you asked me all these questions. Let's dialogue about these things. Well, hey, Paul, how come you're not like all these philosophers and these rhetoricians and these orators who speak with these big words and all with this great power and, and you are, are just lowly and, and you know, you're, you're not grandiose like they are? Chapter 2, hey, he didn't want to empty the, uh, the preaching of the gospel of its power. That he wanted to preach Christ and Him crucified and Him alone. That the power would rest with God and not His oratory skill. Then he talks about divisions in the church. Hey, you guys say you're mature, but the fact that you're saying, Hey, uh, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul. He says, Hey, who are we? We are but nothing. Right? That one watered, the other planted, but it's God who causes the growth. And continuing, he talks about immorality tolerated within the church. That he's saying, hey, I'm hearing that there is someone who has his father's wife. And he's saying, hey, brothers, this type of immorality doesn't even exist in the world. What is it doing in the church? And you have not disciplined this brother. And he says, you've become arrogant. You've actually defended him. Saying, hey, you leave him alone. And here he's saying, no. No. There has to be a separation between those in the church and those outside the church. He's instructing them about church discipline. And then here we have continuing lawsuits within the church. Hey, why are you guys suing each other? 
Why are you, why are you bringing your squabbles about money before these secular judges? He says, isn't that shameful? How shameful is that, that that we who are in Christ, who are supposed to love one another? He says, why not rather be wronged? What kind of witness is this that you bring your squabbles before unbelievers when you of all people, that will you not judge the world, will you not judge angels, that you can serve as, as judges in the lowest law courts, even the lowest among you in your membership? And here in Corinth they had uh, the temple of Aphrodite. A thousand cult prostitutes descend upon the city every night. And they're wondering, wait a minute, what's wrong with this? Can't, can't we, you know, these, these cult prostitutes, can't, can't we unite with them? No, you cannot. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The two become one flesh. He explains to them the very principles, even from Genesis, beginning in Genesis. Chapter 7, God's design for marriage. They had all kinds of questions. But what if this believing woman has an unbelieving husband and she and he leaves? Well, what does he ought to do? You know, well, why ought we? What is God's design for marriage in chapter 7? Christian liberty in chapters 8 and 9. Proper order in Christian worship in chapter 11. Instructions also about the Lord's Supper and the use of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. The great chapter on love in chapter 13. And then here we get to the great chapter on the resurrection in chapter 15. There's one passage that's about Jesus and His resurrection and the importance of it is right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so we see in today's passage, stand firm in hopeful anticipation of your imperishable, sinless state of eternal glory that begins at Christ's return. Stand firm in hopeful anticipation of your imperishable, sinless state of eternal glory that begins at Christ's return. We'll look at this in three, three points. The first is your future transformation in verses 50 to 53. Second point, your eternal victory in 54 to 57. And then third, your present hope in verse 58. So this first point, your future transformation in verses 50 to 53. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall, we shall be changed. Here, we have the context of this passage. 1 Corinthians 15. The great chapter of hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apparently, some false prophets or false teachers or the world that they were telling these Corinthians, "Hey, come on, come on, just just give up that, give up that uh, that resurrection." Right? The world comes like, "Hey, you know what? Why why do you want to make a stumbling block for us? Just deny the resurrection, and we'll believe your gospel." Right? And, and this is this is the temptation of, "Hey, just step on that." you know, a uh, little tree branch pile there and you'll fall into these punji sticks and gore yourself. No. You realize that to the, for a Christian to say, hey, what not Jesus resurrected is not a big deal. I, I, I believe the teachings of the Bible. You can't do that. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
is like that keystone of the arch. You take it out, it's going to fall down. Everything will come crumbling down. The Apostle Paul explained that to him. He, he started in chapter 15 and verses 3 through 5. He reminds him about the gospel. Verse 3 through 5, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to 500 other witnesses. Right? So here, think about the statement, according to the Scriptures, that Jesus died. According to the Scriptures, He was raised from the grave. Here, He's saying, this is the Gospel. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, you have no gospel. He says later in that chapter, Hey, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then you are still and in your sins, and you are among all people most to be pitied. Right? So he says, no, you cannot concede this at any point, at any point in your faith. It's something that must be defended to the uttermost. Here, there's also this reminder. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how come some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So here, this is, this is the point where he's writing, hey, you guys are accepting this. You've, you've let this falsehood step in the door. No, no, no. We must drive that far away. There's no concession. The, the world wants to say, just, just concede these. Hey, we want you to concede the virgin birth. We want you to concede these miracles. We want you to concede that the scripture is, uh, is not fallible. Or it's, it's fallible. We want you to say that it's fallible when you're saying it's infallible. These are the things and, and the resurrection. And so you concede these things, we'll agree with you. You concede these things, you have no Christianity at that point. No resurrection, no gospel. Here also, he's speaking about the resurrection. And he tells you what he's going to tell you later. Verse 26, he says, The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So he's talking, he's talking about the resurrection. He says, by the way, the last enemy is death. It will be abolished. And I'll get to that. And, and the climax is this chapter we're in, or the section we're in, verses 50 to 58, when he explains how that last enemy of death is abolished. Here in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So here, flesh and blood is referring to the life here and now. What we would think of when we say, outwardly we're wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Every time you go to the doctor, uh, you, you get this, your blood drawn, uh, you get some kind of scan, and you know, there's, whether there's bad news, it's a reminder, our time here is limited. Every time we go to the doctor, we're reminded, our time is limited. You know, hearing about certain things with my father. His sister also had lymphoma. So I was in the dialogue with my brother. Hey, you know what? I think it's safe to say that the cancer of lymphoma is in our genes. And by the way, I was telling hey, my brother, you had this H. pylori thing, this, uh, this bacteria in your gut. Hey, that's another precursor to that lymphoma. You know what? 
We ought to be prepared that this will be our diagnosis sometime in our lives. And we ask ourselves, is this something on which we should mourn? No. Something in which we should rejoice because it's, it's, a, it's a reminder. It's a reminder. Your life is temporary in this world. Lord, thank you that you reminded me not to take my years for granted. I often joke that our elder Wayne will probably outlive me. Maybe I should stop joking that because our words mean something. <clears throat> but the bottom line is that this life is temporary. And any time we have a reminder of that, we should praise the Lord. Lord, you've reminded me that I can't hold on to the things of this life. Let me not despair that this life is temporary. Let me rejoice that I will let go of this life someday and I should be ready for the life to come. That my hope should not be put on, hey, uh, they're going to have certain doctors, they're going to advance these things, and you know what? No. No. The body will fail. This corruptible body of flesh and blood. And perhaps some of you are wondering, hey, wait a minute. Or is it saying that we who are sinners, we who are flesh, are, cannot inherit the kingdom of God? No, no, no. The promises of the gospels are good, is good and sure. What he's saying is that flesh and blood, that which is corruptible, that which is sin. Think about the, think about the, the interaction between Moses and God. Exodus chapter 33. That Moses makes this, this request. God, show me your glory. I don't think he knew what he was asking. And God says, no, 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 no. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. It's as if, as if we could think, hey, if we could just look at God, we'd be okay. No, no, it's, it's like uh, you know, coming into close contact with the sun. It would be far worse. That, that God would consume us because we're flesh and blood, we're corruptible. And here when it says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He's saying that we must be changed, sin must be removed before we come into God's presence, or He will consume us. Here, he talks about mystery. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. So here, you say, hey, we're not all going to be dead. He, sleep here is the euphemism for death. We won't all be dead. The other passages for First, First Thessalonians 4 explains it further. But he says we shall all be changed. There in First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Here, the mystery. We will not all sleep. There will be some who are alive when Jesus returns, and there will be some who are dead. And we're told the dead will rise first, those who are living will meet Christ in the air. Everyone will be changed. We look at the timing of it. The timing of it. In a moment, verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The word there for moment is the same word that we use in English for Adam. So something that's no longer divisible. So it's the smallest unit of time. And for the Apostle Paul, he uses the description of the blinking of an eye. You know, you have someone blink an eye and... And it's as if it's that instantaneous. It's that fast. It's not as if it's going to take a long time. This change from 
perishable to imperishable will happen in a blink of an eye. We ask, well, when, when will it happen? First Thessalonians 4, we read earlier that, that there was the sound of the last trumpet. So the last trumpet, <clears throat> the voice of the archangel Jesus returns. The dead raised. We who are alive will meet Him in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. So it happens in an instant. And it will be when that last trumpet sounds. We have in verse 53 the necessity of His transformation. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Here, the topic we have is glorification. But I've I've kept on using the word resurrection. So we have to to link those somehow. And they, they are linked. Because Jesus' resurrection is our hope that you and I who are trusting in Jesus will also be raised. So glorification as it relates to this order of salvation. This is, this is the, last, the last subject under this heading of order of salvation. It's the completion of it. Glorification is the sudden completion of this process of yours in sanctification. Right? Where you're dying to your sin, you're dying to your old self, and you're living unto righteousness. That God is cleansing you from the pollution of sin in your life. This is a good thing. And with glorification, or wherever you are in the process, it suddenly goes to perfection. Perfection is not found in this life. No, we're far, so far from it. But when you die that you're glorified, you you have the sin nature completely removed. So when we're in heaven, we won't be able to sin. Sin nature will be removed. And that in Isaiah 25, this this is why there's that description, the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people will be taken away from all the earth. You think about how Reproach. What greater reproach is there than our sins? That there won't be separation between brothers. There, there won't be offense between father and son and mother and daughter. And whatever relationship there is, sin will no longer be a barrier. And also for us, as you come to a greater understanding of your sanctification, you will no longer grieve God, the Holy Spirit. This is something that we often forget. Our sin actually grieves God. And that we have to understand, no, we should not, we should not lament merely the consequences of our sins. We should be lamenting that our sins grieve God. There will be a putting an end to that. Think also about this chain, this golden chain. When we started, we talked about this golden chain, Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. For our God, He says it, and in His view, it's as good as done. We talked about, was it last week? But the saints in heaven 
are happier, they're holier than us, the saints who are on earth. But they are no more secure than we are here. Because our God sees things as good as done. No one is lost. No one snatches us out of the, out of the hand of Jesus. No one snatches us out of the hand of the Father. Amen. And here, we ought to understand that glory and, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. God is saying, signed, sealed, and delivered. His people are, are saved. They're done. Glorification for us means that we will be made like Jesus Christ our Lord. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That we're going to be like Jesus. And we should rejoice because we should desire to be like Jesus even in this life. Glorification is... The total finishing, the it's all done of what God began in you. For I'm confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that is glorification. It is the perfection that happens at the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 53, the perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. What is the other option? There's only one other option. Either you're glorified or you are condemned. There's only two options. Glorified or condemned. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. There's no second chance. What you bind on earth, you bind in heaven. What you lose on earth, you lose in heaven. So here, there was one death. Men die once, and after that comes judgment. Are you ready to face the Almighty God? Here, it's a reminder to us that we must be ready to face God. Should you save up for your retirement? Sure you should. But I'm going to tell you, perhaps your family members, your children, your grandchildren may not like you so much if you don't do a good job of saving up for your retirement, right? If you have to live off of your children and grandchildren. If you don't save up for them, they might not like you for it. But you know what? It's better to forget that than to forget about how you will face God. For eternity, your eternity is set. Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in your good works to save you? You know, Satan, Satan will come to attack the assurance of those who are children of God. He doesn't attack the assurance of the hypocrite. The guy who says, you know what, I'm working for it. I, I'm saying I'm believing, but I'm working. I'm working for it. I'm going to earn it. Satan's going to say, hey man, you're, you're awesome, you're great. Man, keep going, you're going to work harder. Yeah, alright. 
man, you're the star. You're the rock star. Right? This is what Satan's going to say. He's not going to question because the last thing he'd want to do is get you to question your salvation and wonder, do I really have it? No. He's going to attack those who truly have it and say, you don't have it. See how he works? He uses lies to manipulate you. At the same time, in your heart of hearts, there's this fear of death. Hebrews 2 speaks about this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Here, he's saying, you know what? All of you who are outside of Christ, you are a slave to fear and of death. You're subject to slavery. You're, you are bound by this fear of death that you will meet God. And we're told here, the only one who sets us free from that is Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the only one who can free us from that. Are you going to cling to your sins? Or are you going to cling to Christ? You can only have one or the other. That God promises you the forgiveness of sins. And it's not a combination of faith and works. It's not all works. He promises you the forgiveness of sins. That He promises you justification. And it comes by faith apart from works. Are you going to believe God's promises? Are you going to believe when He says, if you turn to Me and embrace the promises of the Gospel, that you will be saved? You believe that, then forsake your sins and cling to Christ. That He promises that He will receive you. This is the first point, your future transformation. We have the second point, your eternal victory in verses 54 to 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have this saying, death is swallowed up in victory, in verse 54. Notice, it's quoting, it's actually quoting from this Isaiah 25 passage, verse 8. And the mention there is, he will swallow up death forever. Or, we have in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Here, the statement, death is swallowed up in victory, is what we have that's known as a divine passive. Death is swallowed up in victory is later interpreted in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that Jesus is the one who has defeated death. It's the divine passive. And you ask forever? Here, he will swallow up death forever. This is what Jesus does. Death is forever defeated. I hope you can understand that now that you are in Christ, that you ought to have a different view of death. For the non-Christian, understand that death marks the end or the loss of everything that's dear. You realize what they have, what they hope for, 
It's all in this life. And there's a desire to hold on to it. No, no, don't, don't take it from me. Everything that I have, all the people that I love and, and all the possessions that I have. You think about these kings, the Egyptian kings, these Chinese kings, right? They, they made all these buildings, pyramids, underground things, soldiers, all to protect them, thinking that somehow I'm going to bring them with me to the afterlife. And no, no none of it comes. But for the Christian, it's not the loss of everything that's dear. It's, it's the beginning of eternity with your Savior in Jesus Christ. That that is the beginning of that which is good. What you've hoped for. What you've longed for. All those things will take place. This is why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 can say, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can he say that other than by faith in Jesus Christ? Because no one else, no one else, the natural man never ever says to die is gain. Because to die is only to lose. Only in Christ can someone say, to die is to gain. It's to gain everything that you and I hope for. That you and I believe in. It will happen. I didn't make enough of an emphasis in this order of salvation. That throughout all of it, is this image of our union with Christ, our being united with Jesus Christ. Realize, going to heaven, being glorified, we will see Him face to face. That this union with Christ that we experience in this life, there is no greater closeness than the unity that we will have in heaven. And that's what you and I ought to be looking forward to. And this is why we ought to say that death is gain. Death is gain for us. Notice here also that the Apostle Paul, he gives two taunts to death. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is simply, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And our Lord Jesus Christ is victorious over death. He slayed slayed death when He died on the cross. He completed death. He he finished death when He died. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... He continues, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, this is what we must walk away from today. We understand that Jesus has defeated death. That we who are in this world, the bottom, not the top, the poor and not the rich, the despised and the rejected and not the respected, that we are those who ought to be treasured. Because Jesus treasured his people. He came to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. We realize that Jesus, our Lord, He defeated death on our behalf. That when we see death, it is a conquered foe. 
Death is merely a passageway that we pass through to enter into eternity so that we might be with our God forever. The next taunt that he gives, Oh death, where is your sting? Death, where is your sting? You think about various insects. They have stingers. The one I think of is the bee. The wasp. The wasp can sting multiple times. The bee, the bee stings once and it dies. It leaves that stinger in you. And this statement, O death, where is your sting? For the Christian, think of it like being stung by a bee. You get stung by a bee, the bee dies, and that little stinger on the bottom breaks off and it's in your skin. It's in your arm. And that little thing that it leaves behind, it, it can continue to inject poison into you and cause uh, irritation, so to say. And for the Christian, it oftentimes functions in that way, where you have a stinger that's in you, and it still causes pain. You ought not to pinch that stinger because it will squeeze more poison and venom into you, that you ought to use something to flick it off. So also, have you ever been stung by a jellyfish, right? The tentacle breaks off on you, it gets on your arm, you see all these little dots, that you can't grab it with your hand. It will sting your hand. You must use another object. And for the Christian, as we said earlier, Satan, Satan attacks the assurance of those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, He will try to attack your assurance. And for some who come to the end of life, it's as if it's that stinger that's left behind. There's still that fear, that, uh, that loss of assurance. And this is where we have to go back to God's Word. What did God say? What did He say to us? Here we have, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin. For the wages of sin is death. For the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If it wasn't for sin, there would be no death. You think about the garden. Genesis 2.17 But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And Adam brought death to him, himself, and also to all his posterity. And the power of sin is the law. Have you ever talked to people who typically they don't have a very good understanding about human nature? So the humanists will think, hey, we have our legislature, legislative branch of government and we write laws, whether in the federal government or within the state or within the city, we, we write laws and then we'll have a better society. Well, what are you going to do when they break those laws? No, no, uh, we don't need to talk about that because we have these laws and men will obey them. No, that's, that's not how it works. It's not how it works according to our scriptures. It's not how it works if you observe human nature. If laws have no teeth, there's no punitive measure, men simply don't care. In fact, you look at Romans 7, verse 8. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me covenanting of every kind, 
For apart from the sin, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Here he's saying, hey, the fact that there was this law that says you shall not covet, he says, it caused me to covet even more. Because human nature says, hey, whatever God says not to do, I rebel against him, and everything he's told me not to do, I'm going to go do it. And everything he tells me to do, I'm going to run away from it. For the power of sin is the law. And that there is punitive measure that God takes. It's called temporal life of judgment and also eternity in hell. But verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here, thanks be to God. Jesus is the one who gives us the victory. Thereafter, it's all said and done. You and I must never be the ones who, who say, you know what? I see how strong. I'll see how faithful. I see how gifted I am. No, no, no. no. After all of it, we should say we are the ones who are undeserving. And that Jesus is the one who is faithful to the end. That He indeed is good. That you and I ought to treasure our Lord Jesus Christ. Because no one else offers us this gospel. No one else offers us the forgiveness of sins and delivers on it. So trust in Jesus Christ. Treasure Him above everything else in this life. So the third point, your present hope in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the question that we ought to ask, what is your response then to this truth about Christ's victory on your behalf? Therefore, my brethren, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. This is a reminder let God be true and every man a liar. Anyone who wishes to bring doubt on what truth God has given us in His Word, he is the devil or sent by the devil. We are called to encourage one another with the truth. And if anyone says, hey, did God really say that? Hey, you can't believe that. Hey, it's been, a thousand, it's been thousands of years and Jesus hasn't come back. He's never coming back. You see the, see the pattern here. Anyone who questions the truth, anyone who doubts the truth, anyone who wants you not to believe the truth, don't listen to them. They will be there. They're in the world. That's what the world does. Don't let lies and unbelief of men sway you from faith in Jesus Christ. Lies will come. Lies are there. Don't believe them. Jesus has said it. I will believe it. That settles it. So the meaning of steadfast and immovable. The mark of maturity is your stability. That means not blown by the winds of doctrine, the trickery of men, or deceitful scheming. Think about the difficulties of life. So I was writing my prayer letter for our denomination. I listed all the difficulties, or so we say, what seems like the tragedies that are going on in the congregation. And with all of those, 
we might say, woe is us. But instead, we ought to see the silver lining in all of those. Why did God do this to me? Why did God do that for me? Why why did God break this relationship? So you would see that the one solid and, and great relationship that you have, the only one that you can depend on is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who will never fail. Father and mother may disown me, but you never will. And this is what it means to be steadfast and immovable. It wasn't all the blessings that God gave us that made us understand His, His, His goodness. No, it's after He took those blessings away that we say, no, no, God indeed is good. Right? Wasn't, that, wasn't that Satan's method with Job? Hey, look at him. You bless him so much. But you take those things away, he will curse you to your face. Just go ahead. He's yours, he's yours to inflict. And so also, in your life and mine, Think about the things, the comforts, the privileges. When those get stripped away, it is then that we're left with, am I going to believe God's word or not? You know, something that has to change. We think about, think about uh, this Reformed theology that we love. We think about, perhaps, who was that famous minister or preacher or evangelist that baptized you? This false triumphalism. Whatever you want to call it. Hey, uh, something that we're holding to other than Jesus Christ. None of it, none of it will mean anything at some point. If you're saying, hey, I was baptized by this great Reformed theologian or, or this great evangelist. You know what? That doesn't, that doesn't rank any higher for you, for the kingdom of God. And what comes oftentimes after those highs disappear is you have a disillusionment. You have a disillusionment where it's like, hey, I have no more high. I need another high. I need something else to keep me going. It's when you and I get stripped of all those that we come back to what did God say in His Word? What has He promised us? What has Jesus done on your behalf? Here, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Those who are doubting or distraught are going to be inactive and idle. If you and I are saying, hey, Lord, I know whom I believed, and I trust that you're able to guard why I have entrusted you until that day. So I don't, I don't need to be worried about what's behind me. You have my back. You have my front. You have my sides. You have my flank. You have all those. So what I can do now is I can focus on doing what you have told me to do. To be faithful to serve you. To, to have our eyes open to see the opportunities around us. I have no worries. You've taken care of it all beginning to end. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Here, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the reminder. Even the cup of cold water that you share with Christ's disciple, you by no means lose your reward. Trust that God's promises are sure. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Store up your treasures in heaven. Trust, you see, this is a matter of trust. God, you told me if I store my treasures in heaven, they will be there when I get there. And this is where we ought to say, Lord, you are faithful. You are true. You never lie. You never break your promises. Even when the stabilities of your life are being removed and being changed, you and I are called to be steadfast and immovable because ultimately our trust, our foundation is in Him, is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. So we go to Him in prayer.